Well, there's a story I've heard. Whether it's true or not, I cannot confirm. But I kind of suspect it is. Of two brothers from a local family, which, to be honest, is known to be belligerent and what we in Maine might call a bit scrappy. <laughs> anyway, the brothers were together in the woods when one commented on a particular pine tree. His sibling corrected him, that's not a pine, bud, it's a spruce. And his brother replied, no, it's pine. No, it's a spruce. And so the argument escalated until the two eventually came to blows and found themselves wrestling around on the forest floor among the pine or spruce needles, whichever it was. A good way to ruin a walk in the forest is to fight over the trees. And that sort of combative dialogue actually has sometimes been the way that God-fearing believers have discussed aspects of the scripture that we'll be entertaining this morning from Acts 2. Figuratively and through the ages, some have argued over the individual trees. They've argued over certain details of the text. Subsequently, they have lost sight of the forest, which is the big picture that the text is displaying. So we'll do what we can this morning not to do that. If you have your Bible with you today, please turn to the book of Acts. We're in chapter 2. If you're using the Bible provided... You would find that on page 1081, 1081, Acts chapter 2, going to read verses 1 to 13, Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia? Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Always, Lord, as we open your word and come to it, it is our heart's desire to find ourselves under it, to submit to its truth and its teaching, to be willing to be instructed, 
willing to be informed and challenged through your word and the work of your Holy Spirit in this place. So we pray that would be true this morning as we want it to be true every time we open your word, Lord. Reveal yourself to us. Show us what you want us to see and to know. Bless this time in your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So our story begins with something that could very easily go unnoticed, but it is significant, and that something is obedience. Okay, Acts chapter 2 begins with obedience. A couple of weeks ago, we heard how Jesus had instructed his disciples to wait. And as we come to this passage, we see that they were following his command. They are doing what they are told. And as a result of doing what Jesus told them to do, they are in the right place at the right time. Now, that is a bit of a message for another time. It actually found its way to the cutting room floor this week. So maybe we'll revisit it. But at least I want to put it out there that obeying the Lord positions one to receive the Lord's blessing. And the converse is true of that as well. Disobeying the Lord puts one often in a place to forfeit God's blessing. Let not a double-minded, expect to receive, double-minded man expect to receive anything from the Lord, right? It's what James 1.7 uh, tells us. For today we note the followers of Jesus in the early church obeyed him. And they were in the right place at the right time to receive the blessing of God that he promised the Holy Spirit coming on them in power. Which brings us to a second point that also should not go unnoticed before we even get into the narrative. Acts 2 is the account of a promise fulfilled. It's, a, it's, it's the account of a promise fulfilled. It extols the promise-keeping nature of our great God. If you question that today, maybe you're wondering about that today. Ours is a great God, a trustworthy God. You can count on him to do what he says he will do. God keeps his promises. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, this promise of God was made long ago. The prophet Joel in the scripture that Mike read just a little while ago prophesied that a day would come when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, young and old, male and female, slave and free. The promise of God, the Holy Spirit of God will be poured out on all God's people. The gift of the Holy Spirit will not be confined to a literal Israel. It will not be confined to a geographic location like a temple. It will not be confined to an individual like a specific prophet or a king or a particular race even or a class of people, the Holy Spirit will dwell in people of every type, everywhere. So says God's prophet Joel. That's the promise of God, but he's not the only one making this sort of promise. He's not the only one with this message. John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus in Scripture that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, says John the Baptist, but he who is coming after me, that is Jesus, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to, to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus, talking with his disciples reiterated this pledge of the coming Holy Spirit, a helper, a comforter, who will, he says in John 14, 17, dwell with you and be in you. 
Paul in his letters to Galatians, Galatians 3.14, Ephesians 1.13 writes of the promised Holy Spirit, reminding us that he and his day of arrival was long anticipated. This is the promise of God fulfilled. So that's what we have in Acts chapter 2. Don't miss that. God is coming good on what he said he would do because God is faithful. God is faithful to his plans and to his purposes. It is the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was and is a Jewish holy day. A one-day festival also known as a Feast of Weeks. It was to be held 50 days Okay, after seven weeks, the day after seven weeks from the preceding holiday, which is Passover. So, and it is called Pentecost. It was, it was called Pentecost because of the Greek word that means 50. The celebration of the holiday explains for us why so many people are in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, interestingly, Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, was an agricultural festival, and more to the point, it was a harvest festival. And that's not a coincidence, because in a few verses, we're going to see that it was a day where many souls were harvested. The disciples had been told by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem. And Luke says they were all together in one place. And by all, most agree that we're talking not just about the 12, but the approximate 120 people that we read about in Acts 1.15. That it would be the number of the members of the first church. It has been a few days since the resurrected, very much alive Jesus ascended into heaven in their presence. The disciples are doing what they're told. They're gathered together. They're waiting. And suddenly, Luke writes, not slowly, not gradually, suddenly there came a sound. And then what follows here in this, in this short couple of verses, chapter 2, verse 2 and beyond, is Luke's description um, of what came suddenly upon the disciples and he's not able to give a perfect description. Um, he's attempting to describe supernatural phenomena. And when you do that, you come quickly up against the, the limits of, of human language. And as I read this in Acts chapter 2, it, it puts me in mind of the apocalyptic literature of Daniel or, or Revelation. That the author is trying to convey something, but it's too big for words. It, it, and, and, it, and it really can't be grasped in great detail, but somehow it, it, it can be felt, and it is meant to be felt. So as you, as you ponder Acts chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to put yourself in the room. Put yourself right there, if you might. Think that you are there when all of a sudden this thing happens. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Now don't envision here the wispy, frolicking breeze that flows sweetly over the plain, okay? We have two qualifiers describing this sound. Mighty, which means forcible, violent, and rushing, that is driven, borne along. So we're talking about a tempest here. All at once, on these waiting, praying saints, there came this great noise, as it were, apparently from heaven, from above the gathering, not a refreshing breeze blowing through the windows. 
In fact, it's not a breeze at all. People get confused about that. Oh, there's a big wind. No, that's not what it says. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. I'm trying to, trying to describe this, Luke says. It wasn't wind. It was just a sound like a mighty rushing wind. If you have never experienced the sound a tornado makes, be grateful. But have any of you experienced the sound of a tornado? A few. Go ahead and raise those hands up. I want to see what I'm dealing with here. One, two, three, four. Okay, thank Five, six. It's getting bigger. Look up. They're up there. There's a tornado, people. Um, all right. So you, you, you've experienced it. Have, you been, have any of you been in a tornado? Nikki? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's nice to live in Maine. Every once in a while, a wind blows up the coast, and we put things back together, you know. We go out and take the lawn chair and put it up, and no tornadoes, really. But if you've ever been in one of those things or have experienced one of those things, people often report it to be like a continuous roar. Some liken the, the sound of a tornado to be that of a train or of a waterfall or whooshing, whooshing air. And I think that's the genre of noise that we're here in Acts 2, okay? A sound that is loud, a sound that is filling this entire house where they're all gathered, a sound best described as a great wind. Now, we might wonder, is there significance in that description like a mighty rushing wind? And of course there is. Do you recall the the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I hope you do. I think you do, right? That's where he really laid it out. You must be born again. So Jesus told Nicodemus that if he wanted to see the kingdom of God, he had to be born again. And, and Nicodemus kind of rejected that doctrine because he didn't understand how it could be. It's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So Jesus reiterates the need for man to be born again. And he follows up with this, John 3, 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You don't understand the wind, but you believe it. You feel it. You see the effects of it, and so it is with the work of the Spirit. It's like the wind. When you dig a little bit deeper into John's gospel, there's always more to find in John's gospel, you will see that the word for wind and spirit are the same. In fact, in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for spirit can mean breath, wind. So we can go way back in the scripture to, to Genesis and God breathed life into Adam. And what happened to Adam? He became a living soul. Ezekiel prophesied, Ezekiel 37 verse 9 is the reference that it should, um, to the wind, he prophesied to the wind that it should come from the four corners of the earth and breathe life into the slain before him and they arose. So we have in scripture these examples of life-giving wind, the life-giving breath of God. And it is consistent then with the coming of the Holy Spirit without whom there would be no prophecy, no power, no witness for this early church, it is consistent with Scripture that the arrival of the empowering Holy Spirit of God would be accompanied by a sound historically attributed to the animating work of God. The sound of an extraordinary, mighty, rushing wind. It comes on them suddenly, verse 3, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
So first there is this miracle of sound, and now there is this miracle of sight. And the best that we can tell, the best that Luke can give us, is that it looked as if tongues, envision it now, tongues as of fire, touching down on everyone. I like how F.B. Meyer put it. He said, suddenly, as each looked on the rest, he saw their heads crowned with tongues of flame. Crowned with tongues of flame. We, we, we have in this room the sound like wind and the appearance of something like fire coming down. And fire, as you likely know, is a commonly used way to describe the presence of God in Scripture. Right? I mean, Moses, Moses is out tending something on the west side of Mount Sinai, right? And what does he come across? A burning bush. In fact, a bush that was burning, but curiously was not burning up. Remember that from our study in Exodus? And beyond that, beyond that phenomena, there is fire in front of him. God is in the bush. And God speaks to him from the bush that is on fire. And later in that very same story, as God led the Israelites, how did he do it? In the daytime, there was a pillar of what? Clouds. And in the nighttime, a pillar of fire, the presence of God. And then a little bit later in Exodus chapter 19, again, we're at Mount Sinai, at the base of Mount Sinai, and the whole mountain is completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire. I could go on and on and on about these allusions of God and the equations of God with fire. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a consuming fire. So fire is the presence of God very often. It's a Bible theme. And so we could reasonably conclude here that the presence of divided tongues as a fire represents the presence of God. God the Holy Spirit is resting on everyone who's in this place. And that the fire is in the form of tongues seems to indicate that the followers of Jesus would be given tongues to speak, that they would be empowered to use their tongues for the purpose Jesus had shared with them earlier, which was what? To be his witnesses. Which not coincidentally is also one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure you know that. John 15, verse 26. But when the helper comes, these are the words of Jesus. When the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, I will, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. Okay, so on to verse 4. And they are filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now here is where a conversation among Christians of different denominations could get a little testy. Okay? Here is where, if you're in a Bible study on this topic with someone who's maybe not looking at the whole thing, not saying that ever happens. Um, it, it could get contentious. People may start to fight. They get off topic. Or I was in a Bible, one, Bible study one time, and we got to Acts chapter 2, and I was excited for this conversation, and in, in 10 minutes we were in Acts chapter 3. <laughs> Wait a minute, guys. Can we back up? And what, what I learned there was like, well, I really don't want to talk about this because we don't really know a lot about it because we are, after all, Baptists. So let's move on to something we're more comfortable with. 
No orthodox believer is going to have a problem with the first part of verse 4, right? The notion of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in the person of every believer. As Chris prayed, we all experience our own individual Pentecost because the Spirit must come to reside in us. That is true, and that is not what this text is teaching. But we're okay with that. Right? We understand that. All Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. We read that in 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus said the Spirit would be with us and the Spirit would be in us. We don't have any trouble with that. And here when Luke says that those early disciples were filled with the Spirit, he's being absolutely straightforward. True to the text here, right? Because the word translated filled comes from a root word that means filled. <laughs> There's no mystery. Right? Fill the way a jar is filled up with water, the way a sponge is filled with vinegar to put to the lips of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Fill with wonder the way minds were filled with awe at the healing of a lame man. On the day of Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples and poured himself into them, and he filled them up with himself. Put yourself in that room. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, this is where people get weird. Throughout the history of the church, persisting to today, sincere Christians would have held different views when it comes to speaking in tongues. Beliefs over the gifts of tongues and the use of tongues vary greatly. In our own town, those views range from those who adamantly claim that if you do not speak in tongues, you are not saved, to those who say the gift of tongues has absolutely no place in the post-apostolic church. We know that the gift and the use of tongues was controversial all the way back to the early church, and you read about that in 1 Corinthians. You see, Paul does quite an extensive treatment of the issue. And, and it was controversial then, and it's conceivable that among some of you it may be controversial now. But here's the good news. We don't need to go there today. That is not what is going on in this text. To go there at this juncture of this, we may get to this, we will get to this in chapter 10. But not today, because that's not the point. The passage doesn't take us here. To go there at this juncture would be to miss the story, the point, the point of the story that Luke is making. The purpose of tongues is not an issue in this text. The place for tongues is not an issue in this text. The reality of speaking in tongues and it coming straight from God is not an issue in this text. It is undeniable, right? This is historical narrative. Luke is giving us a historical accounting, a record confirming this, that when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus promised, came, he came with the sound of wind and the sight of fire, and he filled God's people up, and they all began speaking in other tongues. That's what happened. That is not controversial. That's the fact, Jack. That's the way it played out. And, and, and to think that anybody would want to take this text and use it as a launching point for an argument 
is just an awful use of this text. Because in, in truth, when we read this text and we read how miraculously God is blessing his people, we all should just be in awe. In awe of it. So notice that Luke says they began to speak in other tongues. And so there's a little qualifier there. And it raises the question, other than what? And the narrative answers the question. We move on to verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Did you catch that? Did you see that? Imagine that. First of all, when you first read it, you might get a little smart about it and say, well, I would expect Jews to be in Jerusalem. That's why you need to read the rest of the verse. Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Imagine that. Imagine that. Religious, devout, people with an interest in God who really want to worship God just happen to be in the city today. Huh? Are you, are you picking up what I'm trying to insinuate here? Let me just straight up say it. The Lord has a plan. The Lord has a will. The Lord has a way. And it transcends us. But he has done this thing. And he has brought all these obedient people to the right place at the right time to fulfill his plans and purposes because he is a trustworthy, good God. These people are from every nation under heaven. The known world is represented in Jerusalem today. So let's tie that in with Acts 1.8 because Scripture must be read in context. You agree with that, right? Scripture must be read in context and Scripture interprets Scripture. So if we go back to 1.8, what does that say? Acts is about the birth and the growth, the mission and the message of the, of the early church, right? Acts is about the coming and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Acts emphasizes that the good news of God's salvation through Jesus is for who? It is for Jew. It is for Gentile alike. That the invitation of Christ is global. That is what we're learning as we make our way through the book of Acts. So what does Jesus say to his disciples here in Acts chapter 1? What does he say they will be? You shall be my what? Witnesses. Literal witnesses, actually, because the apostles had been with him for his entire earthly ministry. And they had seen him alive, and they had ministered with him for three and a half years, and they knew that he was crucified. John was there, uh, you might recall. They knew that his body had been taken off the cross and buried in a tomb, and that it was sealed there. But they also knew that he had risen from the dead because he made himself known to him, to them. And he, he spent 40, roughly 40 days with them, teaching them the alive, resurrected Jesus. And then, as we read in the first part of Acts chapter 1, then they're with Jesus and up he goes. He, the alive Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, that's quite a story. These guys have a great story to tell. They are to witness the truth of what they have seen. Now, how does anybody witness anything? How do you witness to something? How do you bear witness through words? You bear witness through your words. And in this case, they're going to be as witness by sharing the word of God. And where will they bear 
witness. What did Jesus say? You shall be my witnesses. Hello? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. Thank you, thank you. This ties together. Are you not as excited about this as I am? (laughs) Thank you, somebody. Do you see how this all comes together? It's a beautiful thing, and it's all right in front of us. In fact, we'll go back a little into Luke and see how it's even, it's even stronger uh, reinforced at the end of Luke. But this is what's going on. They're going to bear witness, and they, and they do that by, by their words. They're going to bear witness, and, and they're going to start, as Jesus told them, right in Jerusalem. It's going to begin in Jerusalem. And who happens to be in Jerusalem on this Jewish holiday? but devout men from every nation under heaven. Oh. I don't know if you've ever encountered devout men and women from other nations, people who speak a different language, but with some frequency over the years, several of us have on our short-term mission trips to the Dominican Republic, and to say that there is a communication barrier would be an understatement, okay? You go to a foreign country, and they don't talk like you. They speak a different language. Differing languages create communication barriers, make it difficult to bear witness to anything. And when you go to the DR, you've got this hybrid language going on, a mix between Spanish and Creole, because you've got the Dominican influence and the Haitian influence. And so what we do is nod a lot. Smile and point like a two-year-old. Because it's all we got. We can't do it. I've often, I've often thought about this. Lord, i got to preach today in the DR. Could you do for me what you did in <laughs> chapter 2? When you write a sermon in the DR, you have to write half a sermon because it takes twice as long to preach. And I think I'm more concise than they are usually. So I wonder what he's actually preaching. I say a little simple sentence, and it goes, and I'm like, that wasn't a two-minute sentence, brother. I wonder if he's correcting my theology while he's... For all I know, he's not preaching anything that I am. He might even have started out like that. Just bear with us. I'm going to give you the message. Don't worry about him. And that's language is a communication barrier, right? That's, That's the reality, but I want you to see this. I want you to see the goodness of God. You've got to see this grace-filled God who loves people, this heart of God. He wants people everywhere to know him. He wants people everywhere to hear the message. Verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So the last reference we have to sound uh, in this passage is the sound of a mighty rushing wind. So there is this sound, and it is of a mighty rushing wind, and there's no wind, just a sound like the wind, and it draws people into the street to see what's going on. And you know what? Loud noises still do that, don't they? You hear a loud noise, and what's that? And out we go. Luke doesn't really give us a sequence here, but most agree that the disciples have left the room where the Spirit has filled them, and they're with the multitude. Um, 
which later in chapter 2 we're going to find out it consists of at least 3,000 people, and they're gathered together, and really the only place that they could gather that would hold this many people, a crowd of that size, is going to be the temple courts. So that's where they are, it seems, and it's clear from verse 6 that the disciples are among that crowd that is, that is wondering what's happening, these devout men, and they're bewildered because each one is hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 6. Now, now this is where it gets a little catty, verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Maybe we could not see that as a slight, but I think the insinuation there is that the apostles and their company are, are obviously not well-traveled upper echelon international socialites. They're locals, and they're not known for their exposure to culture, and they're not known for any Ivy League schooling. How on earth are they going to speak frequent, uh, fluently in, in another person's language? So that's kind of what's happening. They're hearing it, but they don't know what to do with it. And they're quite sure that, that who it's coming out of probably shouldn't be able to do that. And everything they're hearing, they're hearing in their own language. Verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native? How, how can this be? And the word translated language there means dialect. So there's the answer to, to what they're hearing. Everyone's hearing speech in their own dialect. And Luke follows with a, a list of the places, right, where these devout, devout men are from and the languages that were being spoken and the languages that were being heard. And I, I read through that and I have a hard time locating Phrygia and, and Cyrene and, and places like that. Um, but you could actually look that up and you could see that what this amounts to is that people from the north and people from the south and people from the east and people from the west all were hearing in their own language. And, and so if this were like in a modern sort of setting, we might say all the Germans that were in town that day were listening to German. They were hearing German spoke and all the, all the Spanish uh, Spaniards there that day were hearing uh, because Spanish was being spoken. They were hearing Spanish and so on. That's what it boils down to. We hear them telling in our own language. That's verse 11. Here's where it should make a little more sense, right? The mighty works of God. So this isn't gibberish. This isn't somebody talking nonsense. Not at all. This is about the mighty works of God. And let me ask you, dear ones, what is the mightiest work of God that you know? The mightiest work of God that you know is the story that God's own son would come to earth, that he would live a sinful life, sinless life, that he would die for sinful people like you and I. That's the story, right? That's the mighty work. That he would be buried, that he would be placed in a tomb, that he would rise again, that he is alive. 
and that the gift of eternal life is extended to all who will put their faith in him, who will say, Jesus, I know you paid it for me, and I want to live for you. I know that I was made by you, and I'm made for you, and I want to live for you. Salvation is available through Jesus Christ. This is what they're bearing witness to. And I'm sure there was plenty more because, have you noticed, God does a lot of mighty works. But i got to believe that at its core, the gospel message is being proclaimed. What's happening in Acts 2 is what Jesus shared with his disciples in Luke 24, 46 to 47. Thus it is written... This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Remember, he's unfolding the scripture to them in a post-resurrection appearance. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Did you see that? Beginning from Jerusalem. Oh, on the day of Pentecost. God performed a miracle of communication that began the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen through his disciples. You shall be my witnesses. By God's grace, by God's plan, by the Holy Spirit filling and giving utterance to God's people on this day, testimony was given to people from every nation under heaven, and many were able to hear in their own tongue. How else would they ever have heard? In their own tongue, the gospel and the mighty work of God. How good is God to do this? It begins in Jerusalem, and from there it moves outward to Judea, to Samaria, to the outermost parts of the world, to every nation under heaven, this gospel will be preached until the Son of God returns. Let's pray. Our God, we are so humbled by your word and by your truth. So excited to see how, how it all comes together, Lord. How what you planned before the foundation of the world on is unveiled. It comes out in your perfect will. It comes out in your perfect timing. We are in awe of who you are, what you do, how you do it, and that you love us. Thank you, God, for loving us the way that you do. And thank you, God, for making your truth known. And help us, we pray, to continue to be ambassadors of that exact same truth wherever you send us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.